Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Okay, we're in ancient Rome. A sculptor very carefully is chiseling the letters into the marble base of a beautiful statue. And some of those letters have little flicks at the end of their lines. And lo, Times New Roman was born. It's 1969. The Lunarians or the Selenites or the Clangers or whoever might be living on the moon come out of their burrows to inspect a strange metal commemoration plaque that's been left behind affixed to the descent stage of the Apollo 11 lunar module by recent visitors from Earth. They say in admiration, not of the content, but of the beautiful Futura font that the message is written in. It's a font that screams modernity. It shouts about our first footsteps into the cosmos. It's the late 90s. There's a designer whose name is Vincent, and he's sitting looking at his favourite Batman comic book and thinking that the way the letters are drawn are really cool, and he wants to do something similar. He wants to create a font that's less formal, more playful. And lo, a billion wildly irritating Comic Sans emails enters your inbox. Hello and welcome to Patented. It's a podcast about the history of inventions from History Hit. I am your host, Dallas Campbell. So what's your font of choice? For me, seeing grown-ups using Comic Sans drives me a bit crazy. For me, it's that font equivalent of the dreadful sign, you don't have to be mad to work here, but it helps! Exclamation mark. I'm also not a fan, to be honest, of Times New Roman, and I get really frustrated when Microsoft Word selects it as the default font without any way of turning it off. Well, I can't turn it off. So if you if you do know a way of turning it off, then let me know. But why do I care? And why do we have reactions to specific fonts? They're just letters. Letters spell words. The word cat means the same whatever font it's written in. Does it depend then on what you're writing? I mean, it would be ridiculous, I think, to submit your academic paper in Comic Sans. But why? Fonts are often invisible to us, especially if it's Helvetica, which has become so ubiquitous in our daily lives, where we are bombarded relentlessly into submission and acceptance by it. It is everywhere. But it's worth considering that every font has been designed. It's an expression of thought. It's been created at a specific moment by a specific human with a specific purpose in mind. Fonts contain a wealth of information about tone, about values, about intent. And we, as readers or consumers, react to fonts in a plethora of different ways, from trust, to respect, to humour, to indifference, to utter rage. And increasingly, brands are well aware of the psychological power of the font. 
Today I'm exploring the origins of fonts and what they tell us with the wonderful Sarah Heinemann. She's the author of Why Fonts Matter, and she runs a company called Type Testing that explores the subliminal power of fonts. Sarah, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's a delight to be here. Or to be here, even. <laughs> yes, that's a good start. Honestly, I don't know where to start with this one because I tell you, I'm slightly obsessed by this subject, fonts. Before we even start, I got told off the other day because I said fonts instead of typeface, or I said typeface instead of fonts. What's the difference between a font and a typeface, please? Oh, so in the general world, the two terms have become quite interchangeable. But if you're talking within the typography or the design community, the typeface is the design, it's the idea. So something like Helvetica, yeah. or if it was music, it would be the song. And the font is literally how you use it. So the font is what you use. It's whether it's a metal printing block or whether it's the file that's in your drop down menu on your computer. I never knew that. I've, there we go. We've just learned something. I love the fact there is a community. I think people just don't know that there is a community. I think people think of typefaces, fonts, whatever, as air or gravity. They're just part of things. I remember actually there was a documentary, I think it was around about 2007, called Helvetica, about Helvetica and about why Helvetica is the greatest typeface in the world. Did you ever see that film? I saw that and not everybody agreed that it was the greatest typeface in the world. You had people like Eric Spiekermann being quite rude about it, which is wonderful. <laughs> but it's like everything. There are opinions on every side. There is. I have a I hate Helvetica badge from that movie in Helvetica. <laughs> you have a really interesting life. Your website is amazing because I've just been on it. You have a laboratory on your website because you're looking at the sort of physiological response that we have to fonts. And on the sort of laboratory on your website, there's a thing about cheese, about what does this cheese taste like? And it reminded me of that notion of synesthesia that muddles our senses. We sort of confuse our senses, our sight and our sound and our taste. They all kind of get jumbled up. And it seems to me that fonts activate that in a way. So why are fonts important? I think a lot of people don't realise this. So in my opinion, I find it really weird that we think of typography fonts. So typography is the art of arranging fonts. We think of this as being a really weird niche academic subject that only experts should be interested in. And yet, if you try and do anything in the modern world today, try and do it without having to read something. You pick your phone up, you look at your clock, anywhere you go, type is the interface between you and your experiences. But there's this weird thing about the way the brain works, which it creates this sub-program for reading, which your subconscious performs. So you think that words are invisible. But that's only because your conscious brain isn't stopping to spell them out. So you've progressed past being a five-year-old learning to read. But because all of this is done in your subconscious, your brain confuses. Well, it just mixes up all of the different stimuli that come into it. So tastes, smells, memories, the shapes of different typefaces, they will all start to be linked. And the thing that really fascinates me is how your brain does this and proving to people that you might think these are invisible, but I can get you to eat a jelly bean and depending on the shape of the typeface I'm showing you, the jelly bean might taste a bit sweeter or a bit sourer. 
The cheese game is really fun. People do pair cheeses with very specific shapes of typefaces. There are really distinct patterns, even though it seems really bonkers. <laughs> I can't tell you how interesting I find this. I mean, it's so interesting. So if you're a cheese developer and I've got this new cheese, I would come to you and I'm like, okay, I want you to design a font. I wouldn't design the font, but I would talk to you about what are the attributes you want to reflect. Do you want to reflect the taste? Do you want to reflect his heritage? It's always about who's your audience. What do you think will speak to your audience and tap into the things that they care about? Oh my God, that's interesting. Because, I mean, things like, for example, I go crazy and it drives me crazy. And someone told me I shouldn't get crazy. When I see comic sans, <laughs> when I see grown-ups writing emails in comic sans, why does it infuriate me so much? I think it's become a bit cool to be annoyed by Comic Sans. Oh, crumbs. Okay. And I usually stand up for it because every typeface has a place and it is useful for a reason. I don't mind kids using it, but if kids use it, then that's fine. But if you're the CEO of a company, or you're, it just seems an odd thing to use because it's all like, look at me, I'm a bit wacky. And that makes me crazy. <laughs> I have spoken to people before and they've said, well, I will use it just because it's the only handwriting font that I have automatically on my font menu. The other handwriting ones are way too flamboyant. And if I start picking a typeface, then I feel like I'm trying to be something I'm not. I'm trying to be a designer. So I kind of understand that. Really, to me, it seems like an affectation. We're so used to type fonts. Why would you say, OK, I want to have a handwriting looking thing? Like, what does that say about that person? The typefaces we choose are just like our clothes. It says a huge amount about them. It's nonverbal communication. It's the first things that we assume when you receive an email or a letter. But it's context as well. So if you happen to know that that person is a seven-year-old or is a teacher, then you won't sit there and berate them for it. Whereas there'll be other instances. I had a conversation with somebody a little while ago, and he was saying, is there a passive-aggressive font? And we were working out that when you see Comic Sans in, say, a communal kitchen saying, kind request, please wash the dishes up, that kind of feels really passive aggressive if it's done in Comic Sans. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. I think the fascinating thing is once you see it, anyway, I'm jumping ahead. Let's start at the beginning. Long time ago, there were no fonts. A long time ago in the 1400s. So when we think, of course, of fonts and typefaces, we think of the printing press and we think of Gutenberg. Were they like, come on, let's come up with Comic Sans? Or what was the kind of font 1.0? <laughs> it will actually have been the Comic Sans of its day. <laughs> I'd never thought of that before. I really like that idea. What had been happening is it's thought that printing with movable type was actually invented in China and in Korea. There were various countries that were already printing with it. And at least 200 years before it ever came to Europe, people like Marco Polo and different adventurers were coming back with printed money. And we kind of know that lots of different entrepreneurs were trying to find a way to let's make basically mechanised handwriting because demand for printed manuscripts, which are literally written by hand, had been increasing massively. And lots of people were trying to develop this. And as you know, the way history is told, we tend to pin history on a man at a time. So Gutenberg is credited with having invented printing. He happened to be, in my opinion, in the right place, the right time, with the right set of skills. And he worked out how to hack a wine press to press the paper evenly onto the letters. He worked out how to make individual letters out of bits of metal. He had to make a brand new ink that would stick to the letters. And then, as happens with every new technology, he didn't go away and invent a brand new font. He looked at what people were reading and he just recreated the handwriting of the day, which was this really 
ornate, dense, gothic style of typeface, if you think of heavy metal. That's awesome. <laughs> so it was kind of like Iron Maiden font. Absolutely. So now we have visions of he was sitting there yeah, listening to Iron Maiden in the background. <laughs> would we be able to read it? If we saw it now, would we recognise it? We see versions of it. If you look at a newspaper, quite a lot of the newspaper mastheads still have those very old English, as they're known here. But that's a very kind of gothic style of typeface. You'll see it on beer. There are lots of instances where we'll see it, but it would be quite hard for us to read whole passages of text now just because we're not used to it. But we get used to reading what we are most familiar with. Because it was the handwriting of the day, it is literally like the Comic Sans of its day. That's so interesting. When you say he looked for examples of handwriting, like where did he go? I'm just trying to imagine Gutenberg going around making that decision, right, I'm going to make some letters on bits of metal. What are they going to look like and how that happened? Do we know where he went to find examples? His first massive, massive customer client was the Catholic Church because he was based in Mainz and there was a... <laughs> Them again. <laughs> and there was a big cathedral there and they had really big demand for Bibles, for what were called indulgences, where you could buy a printed sheet of paper and have your sins forgiven. And so he worked out that if he could make printed manuscripts that looked like the written ones, this was a really good starting point. So he used the style that the monks and the scribes were actually writing with. So he pretty much just copied them. So the thing with any new technology, if you want it to be accepted, you make it look like the previous technology until it gradually gets accepted and then it evolves. So think about the internet when it first arrived. It was just books on a screen, whereas now it's found its own way. Yeah, I still think it's a bad idea, the internet. <laughs> Nothing good will come of it. But the interesting thing, I suppose, with Gutenberg, he would have standardised that. He would have made the letters out of metal and that's it. Unlike handwriting, there is no variation once you've made the blocks. Well, although he made lots of different versions of each letter and nobody's that sure whether some of them were just older ones that were trial and error, but it meant that... So, for example, the letter F was done in slightly different versions. When he printed a whole page, it still looked irregular enough that it was slightly like handwriting. Hi there. I'm Don Wildman, host of the new podcast, American History Hit. Twice a week, I'll be exploring stories from America's past to help us understand the United States of today. Join me as I head back in time to witness Thomas Jefferson write the Declaration of Independence, head to the battlefields during the Civil War, visit Chief Poetin as he prepares for war with English colonists, tour Central Park before it was Central Park, and a city in Tennessee which helped build the atomic bomb. From famous battlefields to secret cities, from familiar names to lesser known events, I'll speak with leading experts from across the United States and beyond to bring American history to life. Join me every Monday and Thursday for American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Okay, so we've got the invention of the printing press. We've got the font. 
Just take us through a brief little sojourn, a journey through the history of fonts, because I know when we think of some fonts, the word Roman creeps up quite a lot. Things change really quickly within about 20 or 30 years. Printing press just it spread throughout Europe really, really quickly. One of the really useful things is that most European languages are based on the same Roman alphabet. So you can take the same letters and then just reorder them to make different languages. So this was really helpful. But once it reached Venice, you then have people like Nicholas Jensen, who was looking at these really complicated letters. This was the time of the Renaissance. They thought of ancient Rome as kind of the height of civilization. So they were starting to be inspired by the kind of letters that you would have found maybe on the Trajan's column that humanist writers were using. So they were starting to look at different alphabets that were simpler and probably more better suited to printing. So he mashed up those big Roman and capital letters that you'd see on things like Trajan's column with the tiny little handwriting of humanist scribes and created the Roman alphabet. And then you have the Aldine Press still in Venice, not many years later, and they were trying to work out how can we make much more condensed letters because we want to take these massive, massive books. So if you think of old Bibles, Gutenberg Bibles, you're not going to put these in your pocket. You put them on a pedestal to read from them. And the Aldan Press guys, they were thinking, okay, can we make these tiny and portable so that ideally you can put them in your horse's saddlebag? Because then we could start exporting these around the world because these were proper entrepreneurs, proper merchants. And so this was the late 1400s. And this was the beginning of the paperback industry as we know it. So the books that they were selling are so similar to the paperback books that we would hold today. Would they have been thinking about typeface design in the way that you think about typeface design? Would people go, ah, actually, if we use something designs that looks a bit like this, we can amplify this set of values or this set of ideas, or we can persuade people this, that or the other? Or was it a bit more just kind of random than that? I think halfway between the two. I don't think they'd worked out how to nudge and persuade people quite yet. But right from the beginning, they were thinking about their audience. So Gutenberg was thinking about his audience people like the Aldine Press, they were thinking about, okay, we want to export these around the world, but in a way that will create a new audience for books, will create new literate audience. You will see sometimes that they will use the really ornate black letter in certain circumstances, and other times they will use the much simpler Roman styles, depending on who they're talking to, what the content of what they're printing is. So it's kind of interesting the way it's always been, who's the audience? How are we going to talk to you? Yeah. Audience, that's the word I was looking for. Just tell us, when we say the word things like Times New Roman, like, okay, Roman we understand, but why does it look the way it does and why Times? So that was designed, from what I understand, for the Times newspaper, so early 1900s. And it was designed, so one of the reasons we find it really clunky to use in something like Word is that it was designed for the really narrow newspaper columns. So you would scan read it in really narrow widths, but when you put it across an entire page, it starts to feel a little bit cumbersome. And also it was designed for the printed era. Whereas once we're looking at it on screen, there are other typefaces. So I would use something like Georgia instead of Times because Georgia was designed for both screen and print and will be much more comfortable to read in terms of the typefaces that come as standard. Okay, in something like Times New Roman, in fact, I'm right now looking at my computer at a Times New Roman letter T, and it's got the little bits at the top of the T that sort of drop down and the bit at the bottom that kind of sticks out a bit. Someone designed that. They did. Why did they design it like that? So the little feet are called serifs. And so for a long time, there was lots of debate about how they came about. And then in the 1960s, there was a priest called Father Katish who 
proved pretty definitively, although like with all of these things, there's still a bit of an argument that if you go back to all of the ancient Roman carvings, this is where these serifs originated from. And they started from when the sign writers would actually paint the words onto the stone that was going to be carved. And then the stonemasons came along and chiseled out the letters, but they would follow the sign writers' shapes. And so when you're sign writing with a brush, you do a little flick at the end of your letters because it's quite hard to make a sharp corner with a brush. And then presumably when you're using a chisel, presumably these lines just became really useful kind of baselines that you'd sit your letters on. So I love that it's kind of a time machine that goes all the way back to ancient Rome. And you'll see that maybe on your Kindle or your computer today. And those little serifs, they date back to that very functional, practical origin. It really is a time machine, isn't it? And it's so funny when we look at those, it transports us back to a different age. And that in itself has meaning. It adds something. It adds context to the typeface. So from serif to sans serif. So we get rid of serifs and suddenly things change again. Suddenly things become a lot more modern. I mentioned Helvetica at the beginning, which is the McDonald's of, I don't know, <laughs> maybe that's not the right word, but it's this, it's everywhere. Like every kind of brand which was designed to be neutral and invisible. Like off-white paint, you can't really have an opinion about Helvetica because it is like air or gravity or something. It's just there. Although people do. But this was the 1950s. If we want to talk about sans serifs, so sans means without. So literally the serifs got chopped off. We actually have to go back to very, very early 1800s, 1816 even. We have William Castle on the fourth and he literally take some big chunky display types. So this is the 1800s when the Victorians were starting to need big posters as part of this new advertising industry that came out of the Industrial Revolution. So he released a few letters where he'd literally just chopped the serifs off. And these letters look kind of a little bit like they might fall over because they don't have these stabilising shapes. They haven't been readjusted. So at this point, type has been made and we're going to sell it. So you're now selling it to printers. So type is now a commercial thing. These are actually objects that you want to sell and you want to market. But one of the first names for them were grotesques, which I think is brilliant because if you want to sell your product, would you really call it grotesque? <laughs> Wait, why were they called grotesques? Why on earth would you call it that? Presumably because there was so much outcry about how ugly they were. You read things saying that they're so eye-searingly ugly, they will damage your eyesight. Nice. But if you think about the Victorian era, this is when throughout the century it was going to get more and more decorative. So the Victorians really loved their sort of over-the-top decoration. So the idea of creating this really minimalist sans-serif type, it kind of went against the aesthetics of the day. So you'll still see it, you know, those the Victorian music hall posters or the circus posters where you see lots and lots of typefaces. Yes. So you'll see sans serifs on those, but mixed with all of the other crazy over-the-top designs. It took over a century before tastes would change and we would start wanting things that look much more minimalist. And then suddenly the sans serifs were like, yeah, we've been waiting. <laughs> we've been waiting for a century before you would actually like us. <laughs> and then suddenly they're everywhere. So if sans serif was a little bit risque or a little bit avant-garde, perhaps, because when I think of those sorts of fonts, you automatically think of modernity. These are modern, clean-looking things. So when do they first become that sort of meaning? It seems that pretty much in the beginning of the 1900s, when attitudes were changing, I guess in the kind of interwar years where society was wanting to move away from looking to the past and wars had been part of the past. So people are starting to look forward. So you have 
typefaces like Futura, which was designed as part of the new Frankfurt project in the 1920s, obviously in Frankfurt. I love Futura. Oh, the typeface that's on the moon. <laughs> so it's one that we've started to associate with science fiction. And there's something about the name Futura, even though it's nearly a century old, that still makes it sound really futuristic. It's got a bit of a kind of Art Deco kind of vibe going on, Futura, I always think. Yeah, it really has. Yeah, Art Deco is, again, based on very geometric shapes, and it was the same kind of era. So it's a little bit like catwalk fashion. So the stuff that's on the catwalk, you're not really going to wear. But then by the time it gets into the shops, Futura is kind of the everyday version of the high fashion Art Deco crazy typefaces. When you said it's the typeface that's on the moon, what did you mean? So it's classically in lots of sci-fi movies. So 2001 A Space Odyssey has Futura in it. And then apparently there's a plaque that was taken to the moon, which has Futura on the plaque. There is. I know that plaque. It was David Scott who put that plaque on the moon. It's got all the names of all the astronauts and cosmonauts who perished. I didn't realise it was Futura. I'm going to have to look at it again. I'm going to have to double check afterwards <laughs> in case I got that wrong. No, I'm sure, I'm sure it is. I wrote a book and in fact, I have that picture. So there are lots of different styles of the sans serifs. Those very geometric styles like Futura, actually, if you look at ancient Greek carvings, they have very geometric styles then. So it almost looks like they have being beamed from the past. So in a way, it's a kind of political move as well, isn't it? Sort of chopping off the serifs. And when you say it's a way of looking to the future rather than looking back to the past, there is a political element to that. Lots of typefaces, which we probably is another conversation, do have political references or they're used to say things. But at this point, I think it was more about just how attitudes in society and how things were moving forward. So you had these very geometric styles in places like Germany, and you had the Bauhaus school in Germany who had been developing these kind of styles. But then during the wars, they became refugees. So these kind of styles started to travel around the world. So you see a lot of these very geometric styles in America. Meanwhile, in London, we had people like Edward Johnston, who was developing the London Underground typeface or the London Transport typeface. And he was a calligrapher. So everything he did was very hand-painted. The letters, the style of sans serifs we have here in England a much more what would call a humanist, because you can see the human touch, the human hand in how they're drawn. And if you look at the London Underground, it's got little diamonds over the letters. Yes. Yeah. I had no idea what they were for. Aha. So if you ever tried to use a calligraphy pen, when you draw a dot over the I's or the J's, you hold the calligraphy pen at an angle and it makes a diamond. And so what he was doing was bringing some of these calligraphic shapes into his typeface. That's really interesting, the human element. We like to see the brush strokes in paintings because it attaches us to a human thing. But that's interesting because something like general signage out and about in the street, like the New York subway, for example, is Helvetica, I think. And presumably it's not about human, that's just about perfect clarity, the most easily read, non-baggage, non-value-laden thing that you can find. And obviously by doing that, it becomes value-laden. Completely. Yeah. The nothing is without meaning. <laughs> yeah. With this, yes. There you go. That's your take home fact. Nothing is without meaning. All right. Let's sort of move on. I want to talk a little bit more about kind of your work, because first of all, just explain what it is you do, because I know it's absolutely fascinating, the kind of research that you do in terms of our response to fonts. So I wonder if you could just take us through your work. Yeah, so I started exactly 10 years ago, and it was just meant to be a year out from being a graphic designer from running my design company. I just thought I wanted to investigate something that people don't seem to be researching. So we know all about things like colour theory, but when it comes to typography, it's in this weird little niche and it didn't seem like there'd been much research. And once I started looking into it, there was 
research had been done maybe in the early 1900s. So I just started creating huge mass participation events and would ask people things. I'll ask you to pair typefaces with different smells or to taste things. Because what I'm trying to do is get to your subconscious responses. I don't want you to say, oh, yes, Helvetica is terribly cool, when actually subconsciously you really think that curls is very exciting and Helvetica is just completely boring. So I try and find ways where I'm just going to ask you such bonkers questions that we can start to see these different patterns. And so I've been doing this for the last 10 years, as I said. Just for an example for our listeners, I mentioned it right at the beginning, but you have the word cheese in lots of different fonts, lots of different styles, really crazy styles, really normal, recognisable styles. And you ask the question, what would this cheese taste like? And it's really interesting because there are some things you go, yeah, that's much more of a Parmesan-y sharp taste than that. The fact that design can have that physiological response is fascinating. And so I've been gathering and measuring. So anything that's really round, people will assume that's quite sweet. Anything that's really jagged, you will assume that it's sour or bitter. Jaggedness looks a little bit aversive. Your brain doesn't distinguish between taste, type. It just assumes that whatever it's looking at is going to be a little bit dangerous. So not only do you assume that that's maybe the stinkier cheese, Also, if I'm getting you to drink something or to eat something and I show you the different typefaces, it'll also prime you to be more aware of those flavours within what you're eating or drinking. So we can have lots of fun making you more aware of the sweetness or the sourness in what you're eating and drinking. Is the end goal for this in our capitalist world for advertisers to use fonts as a manipulative tool to sell us more things or to amplify certain characteristics of a product? My main goal, no, because everything I do is I publish it. I don't work with advertisers to help them do this because... Well, you should be doing that. Honestly, they'd pay lots of money. Uh, It's not what I want to do. That's just not my thing. So my thing is all about democratising how we think and talk about typography by showing that it's actually interesting and exciting and accessible for everybody. So I'm not going to gather all my data and then sell it to somebody. It just doesn't work. And also I owe a responsibility to the people who take part in my surveys that I'm not going to do anything evil with their results, I guess. But also all of these big companies, they have consumer neuroscientists, they have all of the technology, they just don't publish it. So what I'm doing is crowdsourcing the same kind of research so that we can all explore it. And I use it just to have fun so I can show you, okay, if that's what's happening to the taste of a jelly bean, imagine what else is happening. And it's just, if you're shopping for food, maybe be more aware of what you're putting in your shopping basket. But it doesn't mean you're not going to. But if I think, oh, I know I've bought that chocolate because the label looks really premium and I might enjoy it a little bit more because of that, it doesn't mean I'm not going to do it and I probably will enjoy it more, but I will know that that's happening. What makes a font more premium? Oh, that's been changing. I know what you mean. I know exactly what you mean. Like if Porsche suddenly started doing things in Comic Sans, you probably wouldn't (laughs) buy. Tell me why is it changing and how is it changing? So you will know really instinctively, a lot of the time premium is actually about the space. It's about things being a little bit spaced out. Quite often Helvetica ultralight with lots of space between the letters, a bit like Apple packaging, I guess. We will think of that as being quite premium in the world of, say, chocolate or in the world of fashion, the what are called modern or didone typefaces, where they have serifs, but they're like really fine hairline serifs. If you think of maybe Vogue or Harper's Bazaar magazines. So these would have been once upon a time, the kind of little black dress typefaces, the kind of really high fashion bling typefaces. 
But there's been this thing recently where a lot of fashion logos have been turning into Sam serifs and they've started to look quite similar. So if you go on Twitter, you will see lots of people talking about the blandification of fashion logos. So this is how it's been changing. So again, as aesthetics or tastes change. So as we move away from ostentatious shows of wealth, as a trend forecasting agency had described it, we're kind of moving away from those very bling associated typefaces as well and moving to things that are more neutral. Because we live in this great digital community now, are we getting this sort of homogenization of font? We all kind of respond to the same things at the same time. So we're just going to regress to the mean. I think we're becoming more visually aware. I personally don't think there's homogenization because I think we're human beings. I think we always want to be different. We always want to reflect our culture, our community, our age. The teenagers don't want to use the same type or the same clothes that somebody like me is using. <laughs> Sarah, we could talk for ever about fonts and clearly obviously (laughs) so we're gonna have to get you on again and talk about other things direct people to your website and to your book where do people need to go so my book is called why fonts matter (laughs) very simple and easy to remember and i'm writing another one at the moment but it won't come out that quickly and my website is typetasting.com. I love it. So as in wine tasting, but for type. It's really fun, your website. You, you can spend hours playing around in it. So have a look at that, dear listeners. Sarah, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for giving us your time and just taking us on this wonderful tour de force of type. Absolutely my pleasure. I've really enjoyed it. There we go. That is it. The history of fonts. I hope next time you are writing a Word document and you click on fonts and scroll down that endless list, you will look at them with a new appreciation, maybe, if not rage and resentment. Thank you very much for listening. If you've got an idea for something you'd like us to cover, perhaps a story or an invention or a thing you want us to get to the bottom of, we've got a brand new shiny email address that you can contact us on. It is patented at historyhit.com. Or you can continue to send me messages on Twitter, etc. Or step me in the street. Thank you very, very much for listening. It's an absolute pleasure doing these podcasts. And it's lovely to know that they are appreciated. I will see you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. While I still have you, very briefly, if you fancy getting all of the History Hit podcast archive and new episodes ad-free, along with hundreds of history documentaries to watch, download our app across Apple App Store, Google Play, and smart TV platforms. Follow the link in the show notes, or go to historyhit.com slash subscribe. There is thousands of hours of history on there, including a documentary on science in the Middle Ages with Seb Falk, and also one with me talking about the secret history of the space race. As a patented listener, you get a special gift if you use the code Patented at the checkout, you get 50% off your first three months. That's patented for 50% off your first three months. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free podcast episodes within the Apple app.